This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Galatians chapter 4. This past Thursday night, I had the privilege of spending time with our elders and staff during our annual Christmas party. Multiple times throughout the night, I just looked around at this group of friends and thanked the Lord for this group of men and women who are such a gift to our church body and to me personally. This year, we went to see Andrew Peterson and his merry band of musicians play through one of my favorite albums of all time called Behold the Lamb of God, which he describes as the true tall tale of the coming of Christ. Well, once the audience was neatly in place and the guitars were tuned up and the lights grew dark, we sang through the pages of the Old Testament and into the New, each song playing its part in telling the story of the Savior's birth. It was the chorus of the title track that struck me as so profound this time around. As we listened to it, we heard something of the heart of Christmas and the heart of the gospel itself. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the light and life of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. Perhaps there's no nation on earth that celebrates Christmas more passionately than here in America. Parties and festivities fill up almost every day of December. Decorations and lights adorn our homes. We share Christmas cookies, concerts, carols, cards. Yet many will go through the motions of this season without recognizing the great purpose behind all of it. Christmas is more than the story of a displaced family, singing angels, amazed shepherds, searching wise men. It is a story that begins all the way back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. And it takes the whole Bible to tell the story, reaching all the way to the end, the book of Revelation. And at the center of it all is the birth of this baby who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to take away our sin, to shine in our darkness. He came to live and die and live again so that you and I might live and die and live again in him. And so for us to make the most of this Christmas season, the old phrase for us to keep Christmas We must see the purpose of why Jesus came. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, not only highlights the plan of God that would unfold in the fullness of time, but also shows the purpose for which God sent his son. Jesus came at the appointed time to redeem us from the law, from sin, 
from death. With his life, he fulfilled the law of God and then died for those of us who never could. And this is the heart of the Christmas message. This truly is good news of great joy that God has brought us redemption through his son. We continue our study of this passage by focusing on the next phrase. And and from it, we're continuing to develop our Christology, our doctrine of Christ. And we want that not to be defined by the culture in which we live, but by the unchanging word of God. Let's look at two things about Christ this morning. First, at Christ the promised Redeemer. And second, Christ the perfect Redeemer. Would you stand with me as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word? Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first truth about our Savior that I want to show to you is that he is Christ, the promised Redeemer. As a boy, when I was still in elementary school, my life ambition was to grow up and become a doctor. I didn't quite make it, so here I am. One Christmas, I asked my parents for a microscope, and I would take little elements of things and place it under the microscope and examine them, see what's happening there to what I couldn't see with my eye. And in a sense, that's what we're doing in our study of these few verses. We're putting them under the microscope. However, for us to understand the bigger picture, we need to come up from our subject and look with a wider lens at what Scripture says about the redemption that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Paul writes that it was in the fullness of time that God sent his son to redeem or to buy back, to set free those who were under the law. As we saw last week, this plan of redemption was not a new idea. It wasn't a change of God's plan along the way. No, God had planned this redemption from before time began from eternity. So before we look at the passage itself, we will get there, but first I want to answer this question. Who is this promised redeemer of God's people? Who was this promised redeemer that God's people were waiting for, were longing for his coming? And I want to show you four specific places in the Old Testament that we find prophetic passages that point to the incarnate Christ, and the redemption that he brought to the people of God. You're going to need your Bible. I hope you have it with you. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning and and move our way through the Old Testament. These stops along the way will be very brief. I would commend to you continued study in each of them to help you continue to fill out your understanding of the identity of this one that we sang of earlier as away in a manger. We begin at the beginning of Scripture, where we learn that this promised Redeemer is the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15. 
After Adam and Eve broke God's command not to eat of the forbidden fruit, God outlined punishment for their sin. Yet, in the midst of his judgment, in the midst of the consequence of their sin, we hear the first whisper of this redemption to come. As God judges and condemns this slithering serpent, he says to that serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That phrase contains the redemptive storyline of the entire Bible, promising that through holy war waged between these two lines, God will provide salvation fully and finally in the work of Christ. Ultimately, it would be the seed of the woman, or how we read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the one born of a woman who would come to destroy the works of the devil. See 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Satan would bruise the heel of Christ in his crucifixion, but Christ would crush the head of the serpent with his finished work and in the glory of his resurrection. To say it another way, God promises one day to redeem his people in Genesis 3.15. Now turn just to the right a few chapters to Genesis chapter 12. We've looked at Adam, now we move to Abraham. And here we find that Jesus is the blessed son of Abraham. Matthew calls him by that very title, the son of Abraham, in Matthew chapter 1. In Genesis 12, God promises to Abram this, beginning in verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see this fulfillment this promise fulfilled initially through Abraham's miraculous son Isaac and then on through Jacob and the patriarchs, but ultimately, this promise is fulfilled in Christ. It's Jesus whose name is made great. It's Jesus through whom God would bless all of the families of the earth. Paul uses two main characters around this text we're looking at to bring to his help as he's trying to lay a foundation of salvation by grace through faith. He uses Abraham to show that before the law was given, Abraham was justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And now he's showing that what Christ has brought is even greater than what Abraham experienced. And in in Galatians 3.14, Paul explains that in Christ... The blessing of Abraham has come, not only to the Jews, but to the entire world. And then in Galatians 3.29, he says, if you belong to Christ, anyone who's in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. Back to that same language we looked at with Genesis 3.15. So through Jesus, the blessed son of Abraham, you and I have been brought into the family of God into this great nation known as the people of God. Jesus is also the new Exodus. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Now, we spent the better part of 
two years walking through the book of Exodus, and so I'll make this point quickly. But I had to include this because, as I said, in the book of Galatians, Paul mentions Abraham and Moses. Moses now representative of the law fulfilled by Christ, which we'll get to. Both as examples pointing to what the coming of Christ accomplished for the people of God. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In Hebrew, each of those expressions are written in the past tense. God is speaking with absolute certainty that these events will come to pass, and we saw them come to pass in our study of the book of Exodus. But now as we think about Christ, we we see Jesus as the true and better Exodus. We see God redeem his people through the work of the Passover and then through parting the Red Sea as his people danced across the dry ground. With the Passover specifically, it was required a sacrifice for God to redeem his people. He required them through the shedding of blood. It was either the blood of the firstborn son or the blood of a spotless lamb. In the new Exodus, the Exodus of Christ, it is redemption through God's firstborn son, the spotless lamb of God. This is how redemption has come to the people of God. We've been delivered ultimately through Christ. And finally, we see that this baby whose birth was announced by angels would grow to be Isaiah's suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. In the middle of this extended section that is so beautiful and rich with poetry of how Isaiah speaks of the one who would come, he says this of the Messiah who would bear the penalty for the sins of the people, beginning in verse 5, chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My hope in showing you these passages from the Old Testament is primarily that you and I would see with fresh eyes the identity of Jesus. That's my primary focus, that we would know the Jesus of Scripture. But my other purpose is that your hope in Jesus might be renewed this morning. As you open God's word and see who Christ is, that your hope would be renewed. Brothers and sisters, our promise-making God is a promise-keeping God. Who he has been in ages past He will be throughout endless ages. What he has spoken will surely he will bring to completion. The word of God and his gospel are the only foundation strong enough for us to build our lives upon. It's in Christ all of the I will promises of God 
become it is finished. In Jesus, we find the yes and amen of all the promises of God. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant. Jesus, the new exodus. Jesus, the suffering servant. He's brought us salvation, redeemed us as he crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. He's brought blessing to the nations. He's delivered us from the law's just demands and brought forgiveness to us as the people of God. Christ has done it all. What do we do with that? One more passage in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. It says there, O Israel, hope in the Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so let me just look at you, the church that I dearly love, and say, O Trails Church, hope in the Lord. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Everything that he has said, he will do. In the season of Advent, as we wait on his promised second coming, hope in the Lord. He's not delayed. In the fullness of time, he came. In the fullness of time, he will come, and he will keep every promise of his word. The second truth about our Savior, I want to show you now from this passage, is that Christ is the perfect Redeemer. As we look at this a little closer, let's slide these words now under the microscope, as it were. Born under the law to redeem those under the law. Look closely. Born under the law to redeem those under the law. The truth magnified here is that in the incarnation, the Lord Almighty stooped so low in wondrous condescension In perfect humility, the author of God's law subjected himself to its demands. The one who had all authority over the law placed himself under its rule. If last week our focus was on the plan of God, here what comes into focus is the purpose of God. Why did God send his son? For what purpose was Christ born under the law? And our text says it plainly, to redeem his people. John Murray once explained it like this. He said, Christ, as the good shepherd of his people, came under the curse and condemnation due to sin. And he also fulfilled the law of God with all of its positive requirements. In other words, He took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. So as we consider Jesus both fulfilling the demands of righteousness and bearing our sin, I want us to answer the question, how? How did Christ redeem us? It's a two-part answer, and each piece is absolutely essential. 
The first part is this. Jesus lived in our place. Often this, is seem, this seems like a secondary thing. I'm showing you today it's not. Jesus lived in our place. Paul has just described Christ as born of a woman, showing his humanity, and now he adds that Jesus was born under the law. Not only was he a man, he was a Jewish man. He grew up in a Jewish home, reading the Torah, praying to his heavenly father, attending synagogue, attending every feast and festival, faithfully fulfilling the most minute part of the law as no one before him had ever done, nor anyone after him could ever do. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this is exactly what the Son of God did. Paul's point in showing us this is he's wanting the church, this local church in a little town called Galatia, to know all of the joy and the freedom that the gospel brings. They had believed on Christ, they'd been set free from their sin, and were walking in the truth, and all of a sudden a group of people from within the church say, it's good that you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, but you're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by faith in Christ and what you do for him. You're saved by faith in Christ and the works that you perform with your life. Just a few verses earlier, in Galatians 3.23, Paul uses this phrase, under the law, to describe all Jews before the coming of Christ. He showed that the law was like a tutor. It was like a kindergarten class. And God's young people were given the law to learn the ABCs of faith in God. But now they've graduated to Christ. When Christ came, they were no longer in kindergarten. They were in an advanced degree program. Matter of fact, they'd already walked across the aisle and received their diploma in hand, free in Christ. And he says, you have your diploma. You don't need to go back to kindergarten. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not faith in what you do for Jesus. And this is where we find that Christianity is not like any other religion, is it? Every other man-made religion says, if you want to be made right with God, you have to obey the rules. If you want to be accepted by a God, fill in the blank. You have to clean yourself up. And then hopefully at the end of your life, you've done more good than bad so that you will enter into some sort of afterlife. But the gospel says you could never do it on your own. The gospel says you were loved before one good or bad deed was ever committed in your life. The gospel says you can't clean yourself up and come to Christ. You could never make yourself clean enough. The gospel says you can't obey the law of God perfectly enough. So you would need someone to obey it in your place. That's the biblical gospel. Not that we earn God's approval and love through obeying the rules, but that Christ has kept the rules on our behalf and now we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. In Philippians chapter three, verses five and six, 
Paul warns the church in Philippi the same thing that's going on here in Galatia. Matter of fact, many of Paul's letters address this same problem. People who've trusted by faith in Christ. And then a group of people decide they're too wise to just trust by faith in Christ. They need to add to the gospel. In Philippians 3, he points out if anyone had merit to stand on his own resume, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote a bulk of the New Testament. And just he says, this is ludicrous that I'm going to do this. But he says, let me just show you my resume. He pulls it out of his dusty briefcase. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, Paul knew that he wasn't completely blameless. As much as he'd tried to fulfill the law's demands, he couldn't do it. And so then he takes this impressive resume and says it's just rubbish. He just throws it in the trash. Why? Because Paul understands there is no righteousness that comes through keeping the law, but only through faith in Christ And so what Paul could not achieve, what you and I could not achieve, Christ has achieved on our behalf. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Jesus was born of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, its author and perfecter. As to righteousness under the law, truly blameless. Jesus perfectly obeyed the whole of the law, never broke one of the Ten Commandments, kept the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. Not only that, but its companion commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. Did Christ perfect and fulfill that part of the law? Oh yes, all the way to death, even death on a cross. It's rare that someone would lay down their life even for a friend. But Christ loved us at our worst when we were enemies of God. He demonstrated his own love for us and laid down his life. Christ came to do what we could never do so that a bunch of law-breaking people might be declared righteous before a holy God. But that's not all he did. The second part of the answer to the question, how did Christ redeem us, is this. Jesus not only lived in our place, but Jesus died in our place. Jesus died as the substitute bearing the curse of our sin. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us, how did he do that? From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul goes on to write there, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What happens there is the curse that the law demanded for those who have broke it was death. And Jesus died the perfect substitutionary death in our place so that the wrath of God toward your sin falls not on you, believer, but has been totally satisfied in the person and work of Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... 
For your sake, son, daughter of God, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's the big takeaway here? For us to remember and recall this baby born in a manger in Bethlehem would grow to be the one who would both live in our place and then die in our place. As we think about this, it's not meant to create an attitude that says, well, now that I'm redeemed, I can just live however I want, Can Is that what you're saying, Boswell? Are you saying, if I'm redeemed, I can just do whatever the heck I want? No, that's not at all what Paul's doing. What he's wanting to show you is that you're redeemed by grace alone, but then that grace renews and redeems and changes every part of your life. Paul is so clear. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. Martin Luther said it best, God is not in need of your good works, but your neighbor is. But let us be careful not to let our obedience, even after coming to faith in Christ, creep in and become a leg to stand on. No, the grace of God sweeps the leg. We stand on the righteousness of Christ alone. But this redemption is meant to move us to personal holiness. This is never in question for Paul. Most of his pastoral epistles spend the first half of the letter rooting people in the goodness of the gospel, what God has done for them in Christ. And then you turn the page, if you will, and the whole second part of his letter say, now this is how you live. Not to try to earn God's approval, but because you have it. Not to try to earn redemption, but because you've been redeemed. The way he writes Galatians is, it's a bit different. But by the end, in Galatians chapter 5, at the end of the chapter there, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, these things that you, sh- you should see shooting through the cracks of your life, if you've been redeemed, are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the expressions of a redeemed life. This is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to be at work in the heart of a person who's redeemed. Often, these beautiful fruits are just hurried through when you read the list that way. Perhaps it would be a good thing just to slow down and read through that meditatively this week. Thinking through, praying that your life, for all of us who are in Christ, that we would see the fruit of the Spirit born in us, that our lives would be more and more holy in response and in love toward the holy God who lived and died in our place. And before we come to a close, let me just make an observation that is true every week. This room right now is divided into two types of people. There are those who have tasted and seen the goodness of God and been born again by placing their faith in Christ. And then there are those like the Apostle Paul who before he came to faith in Christ was just living his own way. 
Now, Paul was doing it by trying to keep all of the rules. Maybe you've done it by just trying to break all the rules. But whether you're a law keeper or a law breaker, what you need to hear is you can never break enough laws to outrun the mercy of God, and you cannot keep enough of the good laws to earn his approval. What you need is righteousness, redemption, forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. Paul exhausted himself by trying to earn God's approval. Maybe you feel that way. And this is the message of Christmas, the message of the gospel to people who have exhausted every other chance, people who have exhausted every other opportunity. Christ comes to bring true, lasting forgiveness, to bring true, real redemption. How do you experience this, you might ask? By simply collapsing into the grace and mercy of Christ. By repenting of your sin, believing on Jesus. As we heard earlier, behold the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the life and light of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, not only highlights the plan of God that would unfold in the fullness of time, but it shows us the great purpose for which Christ came, to bring redemption to an undeserving people, who now, because of what Christ has done, have experienced not only redemption, but as we will see next week, adoption as sons and daughters of the King. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that was long foretold that we have known and seen and tasted. I pray that our hope would be renewed this morning. That we would see the glory of Christ from the written page. That we would hear your voice whispering through these ancient words. And that your truth would be planted in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. We would walk in the way of the redeemed. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 